We're uh, going to finish up with Gideon. We've entitled it Ending Well because what we see here with Gideon is that uh, he does not quite end as well as we would perhaps like. And so we want to make some comments about that. Good reminder to us to end well, though, right? Uh, let's just uh, read. Stand, let's read and we'll stand and read uh, Judges 8, beginning in verse 22. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. Judges 8.22 Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, my son will not rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. No, that's a good, that was really what the Lord, I think, you know, a good answer. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the hearing from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. They spread a cloak, and every man threw it in the earring, in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the king of King Midian, and besides the collars that were around the neck of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city of Orpah, and all Israel poured after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rested forty years in the day of Gideon. Zerubbabel, the Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, I guess the right way to say that. The son of Joash, which is, that's just Gideon. Remember, that was his name as well. To contend with Baal. He went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in the Shechem, who bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age. was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Orpah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and poured after the Baals and made Baal bereft their God. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerebel, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. We'll stop there. Uh, Last week, uh, we looked at the victory of uh, Gideon over the Midianites who saw that God is determined to do whatever it takes in our lives for us to glorify him and not the power of the flesh. So we've seen a development of faith in Gideon. Uh, the victory of Gideon over the Midianites seemed to point to standing and proclaiming the word of the God. I mean, I, it's just as you see what they did in shining the light and proclaiming the sword of the Lord and so forth. That they, The victory was in certainly obedience, but in it in preaching the word in a sense. Not to me anyway, it, it seems like a kind of a type there, call it what you want. Uh, God was working in the hearts of the enemy behind the scenes. Remember as Gideon uh, they snuck down into there uh, that night before he heard uh, a man talk to another friend of his of the dream he had, which basically they were going to be defeated. So we, we see that God has got things going on. We don't always get insight into that, but the fact that it's recorded for us is our insight, right, into these kind of things. Uh, we also saw Gideon, uh, the aftermath, he dealt with two different groups of Israelites, the Ephraimites, who 
wanted to partake in the glory, but they really didn't want to fight. Uh, they, were, they had a pride issue that is dealt with later on. There are times when a hill is not worth dying on, and Gideon uses a soft answer to turn away wrath. It was, it was a problem, but, but Gideon uses some wisdom here not to make it more than it was. There's just sometimes where you have to let the Lord take care of, of problems uh, that, that you really, it's not something that you're going to force someone to change, perhaps. But the next group uh, were those who weren't just remained on the sidelines, but they actively did not help Gideon and his men when they needed food and so forth. So they actually hurt God's work. And so there are times when we must stand and fight or practice discipline. When things done or said cannot be covered up with love. Love that encourages things that dishonor the Lord is not love but hate. So I just thought, saw it there. On the, sometimes you have to discern the situation and act accordingly. So we seem to see Gideon think acting well in that situation. So here we have... Uh, the end of Gideon's life, and really we're going to spend as much time with Abimelech as we are with Gideon today. Uh, but of the many Old Testament themes, perhaps one of the saddest is that so many men of God don't end their lives as well as they perhaps started. And Gideon here, while he is in Hebrews 11 and, and, and doesn't lead Israel necessarily into Baal worship, obviously, he doesn't uh, he does something that causes compromise in the worship of God, and, and there's, as well as some other things here. And so it's just a case where we want to step back and say, well, I want to make sure that when I get in the latter years of my life, I don't just kind of undo the things that I did during my life, right? So as you look at Gideon's case, there seems to be some obvious differences in how he lived his life while under duress and poverty, as we as we meet him to start with. And how he lives his life once uh, he has prosperity and peace. And again, there's that biblical principle that affliction and the need to work often keeps us following after God, while ease is uh, one of the worst trials we can often face. And of course, we have the old saying, idleness is the devil's workshop, right? or idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? And, and there's, a, you know, I think this is kind of a principle that we see. In, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to keep, we've kind of got a late start, so I'm going to kind of maybe bridge some of this. In, uh, the, the section that we just read, on the surface, it seems that Gideon has made the right choice. He has said, no, I'm not going to be a king. Uh, we don't need a king. The Lord is our king. Uh, but as the account progresses, there are some things here that the commentators, I think, rightly have looked at and said, well, there's some inconsistencies here. Um, is he saying that they shouldn't want any king but Yahweh? Or is he saying in a veiled or qualified way that he will not rule, but he but he will rule, but only under Yahweh's authority? Because he seems to look like he has taken on the position of a king, or at least a ruler. He amasses unto himself quite a harem, obviously. Uh, he is a religious innovator. In other words, he takes it upon himself, and this is the worst of it, to uh, change the worship of Yahweh, to do it in a way that is not authorized, and, it, and the Bible calls it spiritual adultery uh, for doing it. And uh, then he names this son that he has with a concubine. He's, he's got these wives, 
and he had 70 sons with them. Then he has this concubine from Shechem, and he had, she has Abimelech, and he called, and Abimelech means my father is king. So, you know, that makes people wonder, right? Then in the first two verses of chapter 9, Abimelech assumes that someone must continue his father's reign. It says, now Abimelech, the son of Jerobel, came to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them, and the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerobel rule over you or that one rule over you? And of course, he's going to uh, kill or try, attempt to kill all 70 of his brothers, half-brothers, and, uh, and, and of course, usurp whatever. But, but you see here the problem. He's assuming that his father's ruling. After all, his name means my son is king. And so he says, let me uh, take Gideon's mantle and not my brothers. So again, so it just it, it makes, I think, people say Gideon probably uh, said one thing, but his actions seem to point to an, in another direction. So there might be some conflict between Gideon's public profession and his private practice. And that's certainly something that we always want to be careful as we examine ourselves. Do I live as I profess, right? Because when we don't, it, it honors the Lord and creates all sorts of problems. So all this reminds us that we must temper our expectations as we think about that the problem with the book of Judges is that most all the judges don't really live up to what they should be. And of course, one of the things the student is telling us that we need a better judge, a perfect judge, the Lord. And so it helps us temper our expectations uh, of, of human leaders. We're all inconsistent. And while none of this excuses leaders to sin or to be inconsistent, Yet we can't stumble over the fact that as soon as we see uh, our, our leader inconsistent, that we cannot say, well, that he loses all credibility and we no longer have to follow him or that I don't follow anybody because nobody's perfect and all that kind of stuff. In other words, God ordains leadership, whether it be with your husband, uh, parents, uh, elders in the church, of course, civil or, and so forth. And just because they're not always like they should be doesn't immediately mean that, well, we don't have to follow them. And, and that's and the reason I say that is because it's not unusual for someone to use some sin or character flaw in an elder, for instance, to excuse themselves, their sin, or uh, I don't need to repent, I don't need to change, you're not perfect, or you know, Heard that certainly all through the uh, you know, we've all heard that through the years. You know who are you to judge me? And, and I've seen it where they therefore reject uh, leadership of their elders, the ministry entirely, just just because well, the, the, perhaps their leadership you know showed they weren't perfect. And again, I'm not saying that that kind of stuff is necessarily ignored. Sometimes it's got to be dealt with. But these stories are not given for us to excuse ourselves. Uh, they are examples that we might examine ourselves and do better. So here Gideon says, bring me these, uh, your spoils of war. I'll make a golden ephod. Now, does anybody remember from our study in Exodus what an ephod is? What the ephod in Israel was, for instance. 
Dobre, no. Okay, well, the e-pod was, um, the, uh, garment, the jumper, I think we call it today, kind of like where you attach at the shoulders that Aaron the high priest wore. It was attached to the shoulders with the stones that had, uh, that acted like clasps that had the 12 names of Israel, one, six on one side, six on the other. Then, of course, he had the breastplate over that. And so it's without the ephah, the uh, high priest really couldn't even do his ministry because with that, it, it symbolized him carrying the names of the people into for the Lord as he intercedes for them. So if he didn't have the ephah on, there's a sense in which uh, it, would, it would ruin the type. Uh, as the Lord, uh, his work is done, he's carrying us on his shoulders as he does his work. And he had to wear it, or he wouldn't even be allowed to do the work under the law anyway. And so Gideon makes an ephod. And uh, one wonders if it means that he was trying to use that perhaps uh, as to, uh, when in, well, in some way he was using it in the worship of Yahweh. It wasn't changing to another religion. We talked about this. Sometimes Israel's problem was that they incorporated non-biblical, what law non-lawful things into uh, the worship of Yahweh. And uh, the Lord doesn't accept that any more than he accepted bell, bell worship, as we see here, because he says they went a whoring after it, right? So the Lord does not accept this. And yet, Gideon is seen to be faithful in, in a sense that he was keeping Yahweh before them, but when he died, Israel goes back to overt idolatry. So, you know, be careful of getting this not leading them into idolatry as such, but it is something that is a, certainly akin to it. It is the worship of God in a non-biblical way. And uh, the Bible, I think, makes that very clear throughout, that we are to be very careful that we uh, do things biblically in, in every aspect of our lives. And so there's only one high priest, and no one certainly could take it upon themselves to lead apart from uh, the about the work the law had uh, told them to do, and clearly Gideon has taken too much importance upon, importance upon himself, and uh, and so the Lord is not pleased with this, and I think the, the text makes us make that clear. So we have to be very careful that subjective thoughts and ideas can become a real snare. That we think that because we've had an idea that that the Lord gets blamed for it. And I just kind of use this to kind of jump off on the sense that, uh, I don't know why Gideon did what he did, but through the years it's not unusual, and we've probably all done it. But some people seem to do it to a point that it becomes more of a problem, I guess. Where we talk about how the Lord told me to do this or that. Which I try to be careful not to ever do that. It's not that I don't believe the Lord doesn't impress us with thoughts and so forth. But I don't I don't publicly say, well, the Lord is telling me or leading me to do this. The Lord teach, leads me and teaches me and speaks to me through his word, and when the word says it, then I clearly can say the Lord told me to do that, right? But just because I've had a thought, even in the best of intentions <laughs> motivations, I'm, you always have to be careful of saying, well, that's the Lord. Because 
It might be the Lord. It might also be just your imagination and your thoughts and, and, and so forth. And when people <clears throat> start saying, well, the Lord, and I remember there's an older lady in, my, in the church in New York who used to do that quite often. The Lord told me this. The Lord told me that. And I was, got to the point where I would start asking, well, you know, how did the Lord tell you that? Like, how do you know that? You know, because, because sometimes with things that she said, I would argue, no, the Lord couldn't have possibly told you that because that's just not biblical. That, that's no. So that's, that's why I say you have to be careful because when you say that, and, and, you, and you see how this really translates into churches where leaders get up and say, the Lord has told me this. And I've seen uh, pastors do that because who can argue with anybody? It's just the, the pastor or the elder. If they're telling you the Lord's told them to do that, but then it turns around the same way. If, if one of you come up to me and say, you know, the Lord told me to do this, then we've got a problem because if I don't agree with you, you know, am, am I disagreeing with the Lord? I heard the story of a, a man back in the uh, 17, 1800s that uh, there was a man who had some spiritual problems in the church and he was just a layman. He, came, he decided that, you know, the Lord had told him go and speak to this man about his spiritual condition. So he goes over to the farm where this man lived and knocks on the door and his wife comes answers the door and she says, you know, what do you want? He says, well, the Lord has told me to come and speak to your husband about his spiritual needs. And she said, well, he's not here. It seems like if the Lord and Holy Spirit had told you to do that, he would have also had you do it while the man was here, right? So, well, that's probably true, you know. And it just reminds us we got to be very careful about that. And it so Gideon here has done something, but he clearly has no real indication from God that this was what he was supposed to do. And even today, many have a hankering that the Bible's just not enough. God needs to speak to me. We talked, you know, Gideon was a man who kept asking for signs. We talked a little bit about that you know, already previous week. That. Um, God's giving you all the signs you need. And uh, either you believe this by faith, as the Holy Spirit works in you, or you don't. If you need more signs to confirm what God has said, then I would say that probably that means you either don't have the Holy Spirit or you're, you're, you're kicking against the Holy Spirit. You're, 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 not, you're clinching the Holy Spirit. You've got to be very careful about that. So, um, we can fool around and Go on our own way only for so long before God's going to say that is enough. And so in verse 28, um, this is what happens. As, um, in fact, what, what's interesting here, I'm looking at the judges as, as, as a whole. It says that the land rested 40 years in the days of Gideon. And that's the last time that it's mentioned after a... a uh, judge dies, that the land had rest. So I thought it's it kind of interesting. That in other words, there's just this continual progression in, in the judges uh, with of, of a downward spiral in a, in a moral sense, in a, in a spiritual sense. And so, you know, things, God's only going to put up with these things for so long before something's got to happen. <clears throat> and so, uh, overall, Gideon has kept Yahweh before the people, but not in a way that he should. And it's no surprise that it all goes to pot once he dies. And he, he just doesn't finish well. And he doesn't end as well as he should. And so I'll, I'll make an application here at the end. But I just want us to think about that in our own lives. 
that I want to progress in my faith in the Lord. I want to be a better, better example. I want to be holier, more godly, more full of joy, and so forth. I don't want to get in my later years and just start to let it all uh, fall apart. My spiritual life and my testimony fall apart just because I'm become old or weak, sickly, or, or whatever the case might be. Well, let me just move on here quickly to chapter 9. <clears throat> and here we have Abimelech's coup, we might say. And uh, we, we reminded that our enemies don't always come from without. And so the Israel's biggest problem has always been internal anyway. Let's just read a few verses here throughout this chapter to give an idea of what's going on. Of course, Abimelech uh, basically kills all his 70 half-brothers, but one uh, brother, uh, Jotham, escape, the youngest son escapes and so in verse 8, Joshua well, verse 7, Jotham stands on Mount Gerizim and cries aloud and he uh, says this little uh, parable uh, does anybody I'll ask this question again just so I can humiliate myself, does anybody remember what happened at Gerizim we talked about Gerizim and remember uh, the other Mountain. Right, they were they were doing the, the one group on one side, one group on the other, and they were saying pronouncing the blessings and cursings, kind of repeating them to each other of uh, the covenant. So the, but each of those mountains form a amphitheater, remember, so you could stand on each side of that and you could if they were about a mile apart, but you could actually speak and be understood. So you see here how Jotham stands on one side and Gerizim and he speaks. So he's able to do this and escape because, of course, obviously Bimelech wants to kill him. Uh, so you see how that this is not just a, a crazy story someone's made up, but it makes perfect sense and it works out historically. Verse 8, the trees, here's the parable. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance? by which gods and men are honored and go sway over the trees. And the trees said to the fig tree, Come, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go sway, hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, It's, a, it's kind of like a tumbleweed, it's a bush, you know, whatever thorn bush. You come reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you have anointed me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade, which of course the bramble doesn't have any shade. But if not, let the fire come out of the bramble and devour the seeds of Lebanon. Um, so, if you think about it, what he's saying is that you had opportunity to choose a good leader and you've rejected that and uh, you've chosen a worthless leader. Talk a little bit more about that. But of course he's speaking about his brother Abimelech. And he's speaking to the men of Shechem. Uh, let's skip down to verse 19. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech. And let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Bethmelo. And let the fire come out of the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. Joshua, 
Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech his brother. So in other words, if uh, you've done good, then it should be, it'll produce good fruit. But if you've done bad, it, it will not. And you're going to end up devouring each other. So he basically pronounces a curse upon them, which we're going to see here in a moment. It's exactly what happened. And so really, this is not really so much about Abimelech. I think, to me, the, the most obvious lesson here is uh, who you choose to be your leader, who you follow, is going to matters immensely. That's kind of the point of the parable. You notice that there's a, the first three trees that were asked to, to, to lead them had something in common that the bramble did not have. Anybody catch that or think of it, what it could be? First three trees were fruit trees. They had something fruitful to offer. If they had followed them, they would have uh, been in a sense of fruitfulness. They would, they would have been able to bear fruit. The bramble doesn't have anything to offer. He's a useless fellow. This is Abimelech, as it were. And so they choose someone who clearly could, could not help them. They, they chose leaders with itching ears. Uh, if you kind of put it in the New Testament church context. <clears throat> and so uh, then let's skip down to verse 23. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. This is after, you know, they had all this had come to place and, you know, well, right after this took place. It didn't take long for it all to fall apart. So God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. I don't have time to get into the evil spirit here, but there's other places, and we'll get to it uh, later on in, in the historical account. When God sends an evil spirit, it's not that well, God uh, deliberately sends uh, an evil spirit to cause them to sin. It's that God sends a spirit to uh, tempt them to do what they want to do themselves anyway. So, you know, so we, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. And the leaders of Shechem and the leaders of between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Skip down to verse 47. <clears throat> Let's read uh, 47-49. Abimelech was told that the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and what's going on here is that they start to all of a sudden distrust each other, which is what happens. You know, Abimelech can't be trusted. He's murdered 70, well, at least 69 of his brothers. And none of them can be trusted. So, it's, it's like they say, there's no honor between thieves, right? You know, who you get in bed with, uh, you know, is you've got to understand what's going on here. The influence they're going to have over you. So, they this, this immediately starts falling apart because they can't trust each other anyway. And somebody else comes along and says, look, why is this guy leading us? I can do a better job and, and, go, and so forth. And uh, so... And, and the reason they did this to start with, I, I guess I didn't really bring this out, but remember the uh, Abimelech's mother, the prostitute, or the concubine, was from Shechem. So Abimelech says, look, I'm really part of you, so let me lead and not my brother, because they're not really part of you to start with, right? They're not, we're not, they're not family. So in verse 48, Abimelech went up to Mount Zion. They're, they're uh, starting to fight each other. And he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What have you to do 
what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Not to mention, I suppose, children. There was a tower of some sort, you know, a stronghold, and they burned it. The people up who were inside died. And then, that worked pretty well, so they go over to the Thebes, another town, and they do the same thing, but in that case, we find out it didn't turn out quite as well, in verse 52, and Abimelech came over to the tower and fought against it, and drew near to the door of the tower and burned it with fire, and the certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young men, who was armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say a woman killed him. And his young men thrust him through, and he died. And the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, and everyone departed to his home. So exactly what God said was going to happen did happen. It goes on to say, verse 56, Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against the father, his father by killing his seven sons. Uh, so Jotham, when he gave that parable, talking about eventually fire is going to come down and consume both of you, and that's exactly what happens. So, um, you know, one thing, you, you just see here that it, it, when it comes to choosing leadership and, and being a leader, how all this falls apart, and certainly when you have to uh, force your way into leadership, when you have to force or bribe or coerce leadership, it's never going to end well. And there, you know, because there's no loyalties. And even if, you know, someone who is a good leader, if you, if the, those that you lead are submitting reluctantly, things are just not going to end well. There's just a sense in which the, the wisdom here, and not that it's just here, it's all through scripture, is that, uh, if, if, if we aren't doing it, if, if our, we don't have the same mind, if we don't have the same goals, if God is not in it, if we're not seeking to honor Him, then every, every man for himself. And it happens in the local church. If, if you got someone who comes in and they really aren't concerned with with the gospel and uh, honoring the Lord and uh, working together uh, in, in, to honor the Lord and so forth, there, 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 eventually that's going to come out in their actions, in the words. There, there's going to be division and, and so forth. And, and so you kind of see here what happens when people aren't right with God. Bible, you know, again, that's not necessarily the point of this passage as such, but I think the Bible is full of insights into wise living and how what, what sin does to people and to be careful about the leadership you choose and the people uh, that you hang out with. And, and saints have to be careful readers when it comes to Scripture. The Bible is written by the God who made us, who understands sin, what it does to us. And, and so we can't just ignore it because it's telling us how things are going to work out. That's what Jotham does. He says, look, if you have any understanding of how human nature works, you're going to realize this is a bad choice and it's going to come back and bite you. So Jotham here is the sole surviving son besides the Bimelech. And he uh, gives this parable. And then that's really the last you hear of him. So he doesn't end up taking 
Bimelech's place when Bimelech died. But we just heard certainly an interesting uh, story. And so if they choose Abimelech, we see here they're rejecting the Lord. And, and when they choose Abimelech to be their king or whatever you want to call it, always remember that you're talking about a one city, perhaps a small area in Israel that uh, we're going to see here in a, another week or two that uh, the, the period of the judges only lasts about 120 to 140 years total. So a lot of these judges are overlapping each other. Uh, Samson was ministering while uh, Samuel was alive, uh, so that they were contemporary. So you have to keep that those things in mind. And uh, that's the point I was trying to make on all that. So David will come back to this. I apologize for that, but yeah, I had a I had a point in all that, but kind of. It's on for right now. But anyway, uh, they're choosing Abimelech. In, in doing that, they're rejecting the Lord because Abimelech, as the uh, parable says, is evil. And of course, he's, he's proven it to be evil. So we don't want to forget the normal biblical lesson. Uh, you think about what one of the things we've seen already several times, and we'll see it again continuing to... to uh, happen, that every time multiple marriage or multiple wives are mentioned in scripture, it's always in a bad context. It never, it always leads to contention. It never works out well. And uh, I, I, and there's not a place in scripture where that's mentioned where that's not the case. And we see it here. Gideon has obviously many wives uh, and now many sons and of course 70 sons, but who knows how many daughters would be included in that. And uh, it it does it only leads to bad things, really bad things in this particular case. And if Gideon had not had a concubine in Shechem, he would not have had a Bimelech. But you see, it's just all these different things to remember. But another thing in all this is we have to be careful about choosing blood over our spiritual connection with Christ. Uh, this is one of the things you see kind of blood and. and uh, and, and the family relationship can be uh, problematic. And, and there's nothing greater than family. You know, I'm not saying that, you know anything different than that. Obviously, it's a great blessing, and it can be used uh, in so many good ways. Obviously, but it can also be a point where family, my family, becomes more important to me than Christ, and. and Christians can do this. I'm not, not, I want you to understand what I'm saying here. This is something we have to be on guard. Of thinking that, uh, well, my family is more important than anything else. And that sounds great. You hear people say that all the time. Uh, and there's a sense, and of course we've talked a little bit about when it comes to like authorities and, you know, what's important, God, family, church, so forth. That it's always, you ought to be careful of trying to put all these things in their order instead of understanding that they're all different spheres in which God reigns over everything. So, no, family, your wife, your children are not the most important things in one sense. God is. You have been given life to serve the Lord and that includes then what you have been given in your fa- with your family and your children, your spouse, and so forth. 
So they all are of secondary importance to God. And there are, there are a lot of people, and I think a lot of people, Christians too, who just refuse to go there. It, 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 if their wife or their husband uh, said, you know, I don't want you to go to church anymore or, or put some kind of temptation and that meant they would leave if they didn't do it, they, they'd go that way. And I've seen it. I've seen people do that. Because they they have not been able to control it, or I would call it an inordinate affection. I see it with children all the time. People who love their children or their grandchildren so much that uh, it becomes a snare to them because they, their their love for Christ is not quite what it should be. They haven't been able to, they haven't thought through these things. So, as someone said, blood is thicker than brains sometimes. It, it, it's, really, it's, not, it's not really funny when it, when it happens. I've lost members in my own church. Of course, I've seen it in a lot of other churches as well. Because kinfolk have been disciplined. And so, what do you do? Well, i got to be true to my kinfolk. I, I had a, a deacon tell me that if the church isn't good enough for my son-in-law, it's not good enough for me. Well, your son-in-law is not saved. So, you know, and, and, and it was obvious to everybody. And so he was removed from the church membership and, and the, the deacon just fell apart. Well, you know, how, how about standing true, standing true with, and faithful with God's people and God's word and try to put some pressure on your son-in-law to repent and to get right with God instead of enabling him, right? You know, so you got to be very careful here and keep family uh, in line with our love for the Lord. And so these trees reject good leaders who could bear fruit for them and they choose that which is worthless and we just need to be careful about that kind of stuff because at the end of the day we're all going to stand before the Lord and saying well I was faithful to my wife when she was put out of the church I'm just using that as an example even though it was the right thing to do the Lord you know that's not going to make any headway with the Lord and no one's going to tell me how difficult that situation would be I understand that well, all I'm doing is saying, let's stop. Let's remember what's going on here. Let's be cognizant of what being a Christian is, of who God is, of what place family, friends, my body, my life, you know, what's important and what's of secondary. Lest we get so consumed and wrapped up in certain earthly relationships that we Set those above our relationship with Christ. And, and I understand the temptation here. How, how difficult it would be for a parent to separate from their uh, children or children from their parents because of a sin and because of, of church discipline or, or whatever the situation might be. But let, let's, let's remember to do the right thing lest we uh, end up dishonoring the Lord and forget why we're here to start with, huh? Stop there. We had a more to do, but we did Any question of the word, and or just as we see these things take place, and, and what we're reminded about uh, how much we need you, that when the Lord's hand is not upon us, how easy it is for us to fall apart. And we do pray, Lord, that uh, as we grow older, that we will finish well, that we will not become cynical and joyless. Uh, 
we will be able to to our dying breath rejoice in the Lord and be an example of what it is to know Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to be so. We ask in Jesus' name.